In the late 2000s and the early 2010s, the marketing industry started talking about a new approach to how a brand can go to market. It started slow and then snowballed to the point where today, most people really think about this when they think about the majority of the work done by a marketing team. The approach was content marketing. Right as this term was just emerging, I had joined a startup in Boston, which installed me as their director of content. And I got to be honest, I had no idea what content even meant. I mean, think about that. Back then, it just wasn't in the air. I knew what editorial was. I knew what creative was. I knew I wanted to be a writer after years of trying to be a sports journalist. But content? Uh, not so sure. But I did have a desire driving my work, this, this very specific desire. And it sounded like this job, which was a part of this nascent thing, could help me fulfill that desire. So I tried it. The thing is, what I thought content marketing was, what it was promised to be, was not the reality. It didn't immediately fulfill this desire that I have. To me, as a maker and a communicator and a storyteller, the promise was always far grander than the reality. I kept feeling frustrated after a few jobs in content marketing. And even worse, I started to feel isolated. I wondered, does anyone else feel this way about this work? So I started to send up some flares into the proverbial sky to signal where I was at, and I hoped others would come out from where they were hiding to join me. I started to complain publicly on social media about the broken approaches in content marketing. I launched a podcast solely dedicated to the content side of content marketing. It was called Unthinkable. The show has evolved, but that was the initial premise. I started a blog called Sorry for Marketing, because I was. I wrote essays like The Problems with Marketing Best Practices, and also the essay that launched this podcast, How to Work in Marketing When You're Bothered by Suck. I sent up flare after flare into the air, all to see if anyone like me would see it. And out from the cold wandered a few fellow disillusioned marketers, all of us clinging to the same driving desire. Lately, I'm seeing more and more reasons to believe that we can close the gap between the promise of content marketing and the reality. Maybe the industry is just mature enough. Maybe more and more marketers have grown tired of all the short-termism. Or maybe it's frustrated but vocal marketers like me who finally persuaded others or became the bosses and the trusted voices in the industry. I don't know what the tipping point was. It probably wasn't one thing. But what I do know is there are a lot more people in this space who believe what I believe than I ever initially uh, believed. I see a lot more marketers making things where I go, that, I would love to create something like that. And as a result... I no longer feel so alone. Because 15 years after this stuff began, I know that I share this driving desire with countless others in my space. Just like the two people that we're going to hear from today. This is everything modern marketing should be. I don't want to make people like stuff. I want to make stuff people like. It's inspiring and energizing and refreshing. It's Unthinkable, the show about trusting your intuition, not the conventional thinking. I'm Jay Akonzo, and I want you to make the leap from what best practices say you have to do to what your intuition is urging you to try. So each episode, 
You'll hear stories on this show from creative professionals who have done something refreshing or unconventional that the everyday expert would never suggest. But it's only unthinkable until you hear their side of the story. And today's story is about In the Works. In the Works is an online magazine and really an entirely new marketing approach for the software company HelpScout. They sell software for customer support teams, but their magazine, In the Works, is about, well, not customer support, and we'll get there. But first, I want you to meet Nick. Hi, my name is Nick Francis. I am the co-founder and CEO of HelpScout. Again, HelpScout sells tools for customer support teams, everything you'd need to manage your customer support emails, chats, your help center, your knowledge base, and so on. They have 12,000 customers, including brands like Nordstrom, Zapier, Threadless, and my current favorite drink, Spindrift. As an entrepreneur, I don't know if I'm capable personally of taking a traditional path. I have to lead with authenticity, with integrity, and with a point of view that I feel is maybe underserved in the community. (laughs) Creativity, it's always been part of our DNA. And so that was why I I was excited to get into a competitive market because I Mm. felt like, well, if the only way to win is to out creative, I think we got the best team for the job. What were a few of those early things you tried that started to set you apart, started to help you compete creatively? It was much more grounded in like survival. Like our core persona is the customer support leader, right? The people that are talking to customers every day. We're actually advocating for great customer experiences and the sort of workflows that that they would want to be part of. So how can we enable customer support professionals to do their best work? What kind of content would we need to create without saying they have to buy Help Scout to do their best work? How could we create content that's going to be helpful no matter what? So we didn't feel as though we had to make a compromise in order to grow the business. And that's what I love about content marketing. You can actually create stuff and if it resonates, it will perform and it will generate business results that you don't have to connect the dots. And while Help Scout has always bet on the classic notion of content marketing, something new is happening at their company. In the Works is a destination site housed at intheworks.helpscout.com. And aside from that URL, you really have to work hard to spot any Help Scout branding or mentions. In the Works is described as a brand new publication for mission-driven small businesses and founders who want to stay true to their values at every turn. Here's how the publication is pitched to the audience in a video on the About page. We know you've got a lot in the works. Companies, side projects, yourselves. If you're growing all of these with purpose, building with empathy, leading with grit, you're in the right place. We're telling the story of a new, more diverse generation of founders. Through articles and resources, you can read, listen to, and watch. We won't ever tell you to go big or go home, or grow at all cost. Instead, we'll earn your trust and pique your curiosity with fresh content that's genuine and grounded. Welcome to In The Works. We're glad you're here.
at the top of this very episode, I complained to you about the initial, call it classic approach to content marketing. That approach really centered on creating pieces of content without really having much of a premise behind what you were building. Not really what I always thought it should be, which was dedicated publications and named properties that you develop and bring to market, like shows. Typically, this would be focused on the company's blog, and it was measured mainly based on Google search rank and overall traffic driven to a brand's website. The goal then would be to turn that traffic into sales leads through various forms people could fill out on your website, or maybe turn the traffic into direct sales if people could purchase products right from your site. The goal of earning trust and growing subscribers, of creating things that people declare, that's my favorite, those goals take a backseat to driving direct leads and sales right now. And by the way, that back seat is not like the back of a car. It's all the way at the back of the train. And you're not heading to Hogwarts or anywhere magical on this train of thought. No, you're heading straight to Snoozeville. Everybody in marketing seemed to rush to create the most generic posts that we're all probably too familiar with and very sick of that you find all over Google's search results pages and in our social media feeds. In the Works represents a new wave of content marketing. This new wave is really a return to the original promise of this stuff when it first started. A brand's content marketing looks a lot more like an actual media company with named media properties and named series at the center. And Help Scout is not alone in doing this. If you just look only at B2B, which is kind of my home base in marketing, B2B, business-to-business companies selling tools and services to other businesses, just in that domain, there are a ton more brands than ever before building named properties like shows, magazines, and more. Wistia, MailChimp, ProfitWell, HubSpot, Salesforce, 360 Learning, Drift, Envision, Qualtrics, LinkedIn, A16, Thinkific, Vidyard, NetGuru, and WeTransfer, just to name a few. And so now you have In The Works, a magazine with articles and videos and podcasts, and it's owned by Help Scout, a software company. As a creator and a consumer of that kind of stuff, I understand the appeal of doing the full-blown media thing if you're Help Scout. But what about the executive lens on this or the owner of the business or the founder of the business who agrees to invest money into this approach? In other words, why would Nick get on board with this? We're in a market that is surrounded by well-funded, well-resourced, incredibly smart competitors, good products, excellent people. We talk a lot about in order for us to survive, we've just got to be more creative than our competitors. But I I do sense that there's like this tension here, uh, especially in content marketing and even more especially in B2B, where you're trying to build a brand in a space that historically brand building was almost a... Uh, it was, it was, people just frowned on it. Like it didn't drive actual results, measurable results. So they didn't seek to build brands and create good experiences. But I think there's this tension and and the fear is we're going to do something so deeply resonant, so creative, as you said, you're trying to out creative. We're going to do something like that where like you kind of have faith that it's going to show up in the numbers. It's going to come back around this deep kinship to use your word that that you've created, it'll show up in the numbers, but I can't directly point to the number of pieces we published and the traffic we drove. 
creating direct sales leads or driving revenue in the short term. So how, how do you, as the CEO managing the business, looking for financial certainty or closer to it, looking for actual results, not just to grow a business, but to provide for your team, how do you justify not just creating in the works, but giving your team the runway to play this project out enough times that you can decide whether or not it's worth even continuing? Justifying in the works. <laughs> so in the works is interesting because nobody brought it to me. It was a thing that I felt needed to be in the world. I felt like in the works, there needed to be like a first round review, but with a conscience. Telling stories that weren't getting told in the market. Speaking with entrepreneurs that simply aren't being called up by first round review. It's a wonderful publication, but it's a very, uh, it tells a certain kind of story. And I think there's a lot of entrepreneurial journeys out there that that are sort of underserved from a content marketing standpoint. And we just wanted to serve that. So I, I was inspired by the idea. And so that's helpful. And knowing that I can be a change agent in my own company, it was easy to say, hey, let's fund this. In terms of funding it and thinking about success, it's very important to do what Brene Brown calls painting done. We talk about this a lot in the company. So that's effectively saying, hey, we're going to write down what we think is going to happen. And we're going to get really clear on what it means for this project to be successful. So is an MVP something that's beneath the quality standard that we expect of ourselves sufficient? Or do we have to ship the best damn thing that we can make, period? Right? And it just doesn't ship until it's the best damn thing we can make. There's a spectrum there. And if you're not writing it down among the stakeholders in the in the company each and every person is going to have a narrative as to where they think the project needs to land so you don't have clarity as to what done means we said this is going to be a sub brand and it's got to be great and we're starting from scratch and so we sort of unleashed the creative team to create something entirely different so typography imagery naming we didn't we didn't require them to associate with the help scout brand at all we tried to write down like this is what success looks like just in terms of execution and shipping something this is what's expected but then moving forward yeah how do we feel like we're going to pay for this long term that's a more complicated thing that i think we're only so we're almost a year into in the works we're just now starting to think okay how can we tie this back to dollars or at least resonance with our ideal customer that we can measure in some way that makes us feel good about making the investment and continuing it for a long period of time. I've said it a million times. I'll say it a million more. Not everything that a marketer does needs to get in front of a mass audience. It's like the understanding or at least the implied success metric is a million people following this or liking this or sharing it or seeing it. A million people is like the panacea. You can't question it. Oh, if, if, if it was a million, it was unquestionably a success. I think we need to be just as creative in measuring success as we are in producing our work. So here's a more creative way, a more nuanced way to measure the success of creative work, like in the works. There are certain metrics that you can buy, and there are certain that you can only earn. You can buy traffic. You can buy emails for your list. You shouldn't, but you could. You can buy downloads. But you can't buy repeat visitors to your website. You have to earn that because their initial visits and the initial experience they had was so good and so valuable that they want more. 
You can't buy replies to your emails. You have to deliver something worth replying to. You can't buy episode completions. You have to hold their attention, not just grab it. You have to get them all the way to the end. Are you measuring things that you could also buy if you had the budget? Or are you measuring things that you have to earn? Are you measuring reach? Or are you measuring resonance? Because the goal of marketing is not reach. It is resonance. It's not to get in front of people. It's to ensure they care. Are you measuring accordingly? In addition to speaking with Nick, I also talked to Hillary Noble. My name is Hillary Noble. I am the director of content at Help Scout. I originally was hired as the editorial lead to get in the works, which is our digital publication for founders and mission-driven SMB leaders uh, up and running from scratch. I came in as the editorial lead. I set the content strategy, uh, hired a team of creators. We had a full-time writer and um, multimedia producer, as well as a whole host of freelancers as well, to combine all three of those work streams to make a brand new digital pu publication from scratch, define who we were talking to, define how we were going to talk to them, what the publishing cadence was going to look like, and how we were going to work together as a team to make that happen. So so very tiny little things that oh, don't yeah. have any it's just, it, was, it was really light work at the beginning. Coming in to a company who already had the general vision for this, I was surprised by how much creative control and trust I was given, which I haven't necessarily had in any other company. I think it was, that part was surprising and also like pretty freaking scary at the beginning. When I say blank slate, I mean like total blank slate. I had to unlearn sort of like asking permission for things and like asking for feedback on every decision I was making um, on this like big bet and investment we were making. I think like the amount of trust I was given to just like run with ideas and sort of make the case myself for why I was making decisions rather than having to ask if it was okay was yeah. surprising and like very overwhelming at first. And then like once I sort of got into stride, like very awesome. The very first story ever featured on the homepage of issue number one of In The Works was about the company Chezzy. That's Chezzy, C-H-E-Z-I-E, Chezzy. The co-founders are sister and brother, Dumebi and Toby Egbona. Dumebi and Toby are first-generation Nigerian immigrants. And in fact, the word Chezzy originates from the Igbo people of Nigeria, and it means to reflect. Because according to Dumebi and Toby, the key to an inclusive workplace is the ability to reflect internally. That is, to ensure that your intentions match your outcomes. And so the company, Chezzy, is building software tools to help companies do that. They're creating tools to help companies improve their diversity, equity, and inclusion outcomes in reality, giving employee resource groups, often called ERGs, a central place to collect data, documentation, provide resources and templates to their teammates and company leadership, and get a holistic view of their membership, events, engagement, and budget. Chessy's customers include brands like Airtable and the NBA. The story of Chessy on In The Works is titled Bridging the Belonging Gap, and one of the more powerful points made in the piece is from Dumebi, who says, quote, Just because you're bringing in diverse talent doesn't mean they're going to stay there, especially when you don't have the programs and structures in place to retain them. Unquote. I love that. It speaks to the overall vibe of In the Works, the overall premise of that publication, which is to help entrepreneurs that care about doing things well 
not just doing things that are big. There's always like uh, like an excitement phase of a project where you know you're planning something new that eventually the audience gets and they go, oh, this is awesome. You know, this is premium. This is polished. This is exciting. But when you were in it as the makers of that project, it didn't really feel that way. Like until you were done. And so when when you think about the planning, the talent, the production, even the editing after the pieces were drafted, like just all the stages involved here, what was the most difficult part of bringing in the works to life? The big challenge was, okay, now we're so juiced about this. How do we actually bring it to life? And executing on the, the building of that site took way longer than we thought. It took a good four months longer to ship the project we're really having to make some difficult trade-offs. So it was when the scope of the development effort sort of blew up on us. Cause we, like I said, like this was one of those projects when we painted done, we're giving our very best. It has to be phenomenal on day one. It has to be a hundred percent what we want it to be and nothing less. It's a long-term investment. There's no way around it. Very early on, one of the like guiding slides that we had, or this chart that we created was uh, a pie chart that showed the different percentage of the types of content we wanted to tell. So we wanted to break it up by about, you know, 25% would be those like written features and profiles, like really deep dives into founder stories, like really inspiring content, um, get a feel for some of the members of that that target audience that we were trying to reach and trying to speak to and speak with. And then another 25% for multimedia. So, you know, inspiring audiovisual pieces, photo stories, audio series and interviews, video and then 40%, which is definitely the biggest percentage in the pie chart, was growth-based content, like with actionable insights from founders for founders on growing purposefully, whether that's something super tactical, like how to name your products or how to set up your compensation structure equitably to sort of bigger like experiential topics like transitioning from a founder role to a CEO role. But then that last 10% was sort of like an overflow, which we called snacks internally, and it sort of made its way publicly onto the site. But it was just basically like that 10% of like extra fun like playlists or quick top five lists that didn't quite fit the other sections. The goal there was really to like strike that balance for our audience between like inspirational content and practical advice. So we yeah. wanted to tell awesome stories about like atypical backgrounds and resilient founders who had created their own path to success. But we also wanted to equip people with that like very human and helpful set of resources to grow. And at the same time, that range of content format also ensured that there's something or some meaningful way for every visitor to interact within the works. Whether they have two minutes or 45 minutes to spend, they would be able to take something meaningful away. If you think about the whole site as like wandering through the jungle, trying to hack your way through it, not sure if you can get out and eventually you get out and then you have to do the next project and you're back into a jungle and you're like, oh great, I'm here again. I kind of think of this moment as you're heading off into the jungle, celebrated by the people who are not coming with you but want you to succeed. Mm -hmm. But as you start to move further and further into the forest, their cheers start to fade. And all you can hear now are the sounds of what you're dealing with right around you. So the enthusiasm can only sort of take you so far, right? And then it's right. up to you. Right. What was that first moment where you're walking into the project, you're into the jungle, so to speak, and you're like, oh, crap, this is going to be hard. <laughs> This team that was assembled, this like dream team of designers and writers and developers that were, was assembled to create this, 
we work for Help Scout, not in the works. So I think like we were pouring 100% of our energy and our resources into this, getting this huge project off the ground. But that was a struggle because there are lots of other business objectives and, you know, content projects and marketing projects that were going on at the same time. So I think the moment that was the toughest is that we had built the timeline around one big launch date. We were working toward that as a team. And that was sort of like we had our sights set on this date. We were going to launch. We were going to have everything ready to go. And as we got closer, we had to shift that date, which doesn't actually sound that daunting when I say it now in retrospect. But like at the time when that had been like the public date that we had committed to other stakeholders as well, I think that was a moment where we were like, oh, we misjudged how much work this was going to take, you know, how much energy, how many iterations. And I think that was that was a tough moment because I think it, it sort of set our momentum back a little bit because it was like missing a goal, even though it was an arbitrary goal that we set. I think that when we had to shift that that all powerful launch date, I think that was tough. There's so many things that are at play bottled up in that one launch date. I'll, I'll pick out two. Yeah. One, oftentimes inside of a business, you just kind of make stuff up. You're like, <laughs> yeah, we're going to hit 10 million this year because eh, it feels right. Or we're going to ship at this deadline because it feels right or we want to. And it's tough to get people to like take deadlines seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other part of it is like, you could just keep working forever on a creative project. It's like uh, I was an English literature major. It's really hard for, <laughs> really hard for English literature to get like valedictorian of the class because there's no getting 100% correct on an essay. There's not a perfect essay. You can always do something to add, subtract, or tweak. So at the very same time, you have this like arbitrary deadline mm-hmm. that you're like, I don't have to take that seriously. And yet it aids the work when you do. Yes. How do you make sense of that? That was a tough balance. We did feel like the need to hold ourselves to this deadline because if we don't, then who will, right? But at the same time, the reason we ended up shifting is because the the deadline became so unrealistic and Help Scout is a a place where we care a lot about the employee experience and people have the space and time to do that work in a meaningful way. And we were not in a place where we were doing that. When we were trying to meet this this unrealistic deadline, we we started to break that a little bit. Once we realized that shifting that de- deadline was going to improve sort of the entire team's energy level and ability to commit to this project for the long term for years potentially and not burn out, we needed to let go of our own arbitrary deadline setting. How do you help the team remember the forest when day to day they could get caught worrying about the trees? I can't even tell you the number of founders who have come back to us and said, said, I have been interviewed for, you know, 30 different articles. This is the most accurately represented I have ever felt and like most true to my own story. And I think like making sure that the full team from the writers, the person who wrote that article to the developer who built the, you know, CMS component on which it is told, like I think knowing that that's happening, that we're accurately representing these founders that are, you know, bucking the trends of what founder stories have looked and sounded like for the last however many years. That part, that sort of like big mission-driven part of In the Works is what keeps everybody like very excited. One of the things that got me most excited when talking to Hillary was the reaction that she got when reaching out to entrepreneurs to feature them on In the Works before the publication even launched. 
Unlike a lot of her peers, who would probably advertise some giant audience number or fancy-sounding names that had been profiled before, they didn't have that because they were pre-launch. Additionally, they would never have that because of their mission. One of our sort of informal guiding principles is we don't want anything that you read on in, in the works to be something that you could read in 20 other places on the internet or other business blogs. If it's starting to sound like that, we either scrap it or we come up with a different way to approach it. We're doing something different. We're not writing B2B necessarily like in the traditional form. We're not trying to come up with some institutional voice that we're, every piece has to adopt. It's right. more like these are the stories that resonate with us as a, you know, mission-driven software company that is not super focused on hyper-growth, but focused more on our both profit and purpose. And I think that knowing that we're not trying to write from the institution's voice, but more from um, just like, let's tell the stories we care about hearing. It was surprisingly easy to get founders and companies to agree to an interview before we even had a live site to direct them to. But just explaining what we were doing and the types of stories we wanted to tell was enough to interest people and, and make them want to get involved. They had no content. They had no data. Nothing. So why were people excited to talk to them? Because she pitched a premise. The premise is the idea which everything else is based on for your show or your newsletter or your book or anything. And the premise provides others motivation to subscribe, not by clicking a button, but subscribe in the traditional sense into your belief system, into the journey that you're on, into the change that you're trying to spark in the world to understand something differently or change something for the better. The premise is not what you explore. It's not your topics. Instead, it combines what you explore with how you explore it, which gives others a reason why they should care. And you can pitch your premise using something that I call the XY Premise Pitch Framework. X is your topics and Y is your hook, your angle, your way into those topics. Combining X and Y, the topics and the hook, conveys why what you're doing is interesting and original and worth anyone's time. The XY premise sounds like this, and it could be for a show, a magazine, any kind of project. For this example, I'll just mention a show. This is a show about X. Unlike other shows about X, only we, Y. This is a show about topic, unlike other shows about the same topic, and you have to admit, there's a lot of content about your topics out there already, only we explore it this way. Have this hook, conceit, angle, or belief. This is a show about X, Unlike other shows about X, only we, Y. Here's Unthinkable's XY premise pitch. This is a show about creative work. Unlike other shows about creative work, only we explore how creative people made the leap between what best practices say you have to do and what their intuition was urging them to try instead. Rejecting best practices, tr trusting you know yourself and your your gut. I, I don't know. It sounds sounds kind of unthinkable to me. Just saying. For in the works, the premise pitch might be like this. This is a publication about entrepreneurship. Unlike other publications about entrepreneurship, only we tell stories of founders whose values do not align with visions of hyper growth because they want to do good things, not just big things.
So that is the first geeky thing I loved from Hillary and her team's work, the power of a premise on full display. It got people so excited and aligned with them so closely and resonated so deeply, they didn't even need to show any proof or data or samples to others to get those subjects to reply positively to be a part of it pre-launch. The second thing that made me geek out comes from the very top of Help Scout. Nick has tasked Hillary and her team with telling stories that are not widely told everywhere. And this runs directly counter to one of the core best practices of running a business show or publication as a marketer. In other words, if you remember the premise of Unthinkable, well, this is a perfect fit for that because they rejected the best practice. To not try and feature the biggest and best known names in your work seems unthinkable. It breaks from the conventional thinking in a very clear way because almost all B2B interviewers obsess over booking the biggest names possible. Success looks like talking to the sharks from Shark Tank, the CEOs of Apple and Google, the parade of influential authors and social media personalities with the most followers. And this has become so predictable that even the people on the receiving end have started to make fun of it. I heard Seth Godin on a podcast who started to joke around. He said, Somebody somewhere must be teaching marketers a growth hack for starting a brand new podcast that says, book Seth Godin and you have a successful podcast. Help Scout is not doing that. They're looking to tell more original and diverse stories about people whose values don't align with a typical business story. We founded this company to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to create the sort of company that we'd like to see more of in the world. So from day one, there was a problem that we wanted to solve in the market. There was a segment of the market that was underserved. So there was the business case, but we wouldn't have founded a business unless we wanted to invest equally in cultivating a culture that people wanted to be part of, a business that people were proud to work for, and a model for the next generation of company builders to look at and say, I want to build my company that way. Once we know that we feel like we've succeeded at that, we can start bridging that gap a little bit more clearly between In the Works and Help Scout. We will have created this sort of like genuine foundation of amazing content for founders and mission-driven leaders. But I think yeah. the, the first phase was really focusing on the quality and telling the stories we wanted to tell. And I think the yet-to-be sort of second phase that we'll enter is like determining what levers we can pull and what sort of more meaningful connections we can make between In the Works and the Help Scout brand. So th there was always a dual purpose. The hypothesis that I have and have so far validated is that a business can only maximize its market potential if it measures success in both terms of profit and purpose. If you only measure success through one mechanism, profit, then it's not possible to reach your full potential in the long term. And I think that's what a lot of businesses are coming around to over the course of the last 50 years. What I can solve is I can build a business that operates in this way and models the hypothesis that I believe to be true. And if we're successful, if we're able to reach our long-term potential as a business, you can look at Help Scout and say, that's absolutely a business that measured success in terms of profit and purpose and look at what they did. We need the storytellers, we need the creatives, we need the folks who are very values aligned with everything you're saying, but many of whom have become so profoundly disillusioned by business, by capitalism, whatever the monolith is, that they're not even willing to look 
our way or your way, Nick. That pains me because I'm like, you have the exact right skill set. You also have the exact right values, but you've written it all off. I understand that it can be really frustrating to see bad actors in, in the society, bad companies do bad things to good people. But let's be clear, nonprofit is not a panacea. There are incentive challenges with the nonprofit business model. What I love about capitalism is customer decides, right? You have to make something people want. And you know what people want? They want to do business with companies that they have a shared sense of values with. So nobody buys a Patagonia jacket because it's a great quality jacket. It's a great quality jacket, but nobody actually buys one for that reason, right? They buy because they have a sense of shared values alignment with that company. And I believe the future of 21st century business is consumers have all this selection. They have the opportunity to choose companies they want to do business with. And guess what? They want to do business with companies that are doing right by them and their community. So ultimately, I think capitalism will make the correction. Whether some people agree with it or not as an ideal, this, this correction's already underway. And I just want to be part of that change because fundamentally, I think the system that works best is one where customers decide. And it's our obligation to create value for the customer or the consumer. What do you see as the role of story in that? Stories create emotional kinship with an audience that is deep and meaningful. It creates a, it forms a bond that's difficult to otherwise form with people. I don't know of a better substitute for telling great stories that mean things to people and help people gain perspective. That's what I love about a great story. I get to see the world through somebody else's eyes mm. and it gives me a greater perspective or view of the world. And the more we can, more we have of that in our society, maybe the more we start to come around to some of these nuances. And I believe that at a fundamental level, our nature is to do right by other people. Our nature is to build things that people love and respond to. It's this idea that all that matters is shareholder return or profit that sort of messed with our default state or, or way of operating. I feel like changing that is only just encouraging people to be true to themselves. And so maybe there's a dividing line between marketers and leaders who do this stuff well and those who say they want to do it but fail or never do. Perhaps the dividing line is really a leap of faith that yes, this is the right approach. Make no mistake, the way that we're building our business is more difficult right now. <laughs> it's harder to grow, it's harder to raise money, but I just believe it's the right thing to do. By way of talking with people that wanna work here, I'm convinced <laughs> that it's the right thing to do because there are so many incredibly talented people that want to work for a company they believe in. And there are they are so few and far between that if we can offer them an opportunity to do their best work and then move on to something else or start something else themselves, then we're already effectuating the change that we want to see in the world. It's just one person by one person. It's not going to happen all at once. But even if building this business day to day is exceedingly difficult and it would probably be easier to just go growth at all costs and throw everything else to the wind. I don't know. I choose to be stubborn about that.
Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production support from Alana Nevins. Special thanks to Nick Francis and Hilary Noble from Help Scout for their creativity and generosity. If you share this show, and I really hope you will, please remember to thank them too. If you like the show, consider my free newsletter, Playing Favorites, which I send every other week. Every edition contains a brand new essay exploring what it takes to make work that matters more to yourself and to others. I write about craft, creativity, resonance, storytelling, and questioning best practices. Subscribe for free at jayaconzo.com, and there's also a link right in your show notes. By the way, I personally read and respond to every reply I get from my email subscribers, and I send exclusive access to projects I'm working on there too. Once again, that's at jayaconzo.com or check your show notes to subscribe. We're back soon with a brand new episode of the show. It is episode 200 up next. 200 episodes. I can't believe it. We are trying something new and I think pretty special. It's already in the works, if you will. But until then, as always, I have to remind you, keep making what matters. See you.